my first real engagement with Shakespeare was an episode of DuckTales. This is a history. This is a Hello and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. I'm Emily Lyon, the Artistic Director of Hedge Pig Ensemble Theater, and I am so glad to share with you this edited panel that we did with Karen Ann Daniels from the Folger Theater. She and I did a panel together in October of 2022, and here is the edited version. So we don't usually do a Q&A on podcasts, but we'll get a few questions from the audience. And of course, if you do have any audience questions that you'd like us to answer, you can always email emily at hedgepigensemble.org. And I hope you please enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about what is a classic I am Emily Lyon, the Artistic Director of Hedgepig. I want to introduce Karen Ann Daniels, who is the Artistic Director and Director of Programming at the Folger Shakespeare Theater. Karen Ann is known for creating authentic engagement with communities through theater for the Old Globe in San Diego and the Public Theater's mobile unit in New York City. She's been a co-producer and facilitator for the Shakespeare in Prisons Conference. And as an established artist, she is a commissioned playwright, actor, director, singer, and a 2021 Atlantic Fellow on Racial Equity, a network of leaders from the U.S. and South Africa working to build expansive new futures in which Black people and all people of color are seen, valued, and respected, which is an amazing bio. And I can't wait to be in conversation with you about all of your goals and this topic of what is a classic. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself, Karen Ann, uh, with anything I've missed, and also briefly why you personally got into working with classics. Thanks, Emily. I'm, first of all, just so happy to be here tonight. And I don't even know if you skipped anything. I think that was like the, that's a good summary. (laughs) I will go straight to answering your question, which is why did I get into classics? And I think, why do anybody, you get introduced to it in school. It's there. It's part of your curriculum. You know, I hate to give that sort of obvious answer, but it is true in many ways I really got in mostly into, you know, guess Shakespeare. I know, surprise. I really got into Shakespeare. And I love to say that my first real engagement with Shakespeare was an episode of DuckTales. So uh, not the place, you know, you would think you would find interest into something like that. So it was already not exactly what it was, but it was an interpretation. And, you know, for my generation growing up, And so if you're interested, it is called Much Ado About McDuck, and you can still watch it. You can find it out there on the Googles. And what that taught me was that really classic saying about all the world's a stage. Concluded the episode with that, as well as introduced bits and pieces of the seven ages of man. So really, I am not so much a classicist as I am a theater person, uh, an artist, and I enjoy a good story. I enjoy telling good stories, and I think that's really how, you know, I got into the classics. Incredible. I And I know that that's like, right, and education being introduced to it is how I guess we all come to this work. And I think that that's part of this conversation, too, of how do we define what is a classic? But what would you say sort of in the field 
the general general parlance is for what the criteria of classics aside maybe aside from time period although i think that that's part of the conversation as well yeah i mean i think for me what is classic is definitely more connotation than denotation if you would it's definitely just a, a, a lot more of something that seems to stand the test of time across many people's perspectives, traditions, stories that seem to bubble up and get continued forth, and also objects that applies to objects as well. And I think, you know, it's really about ultimately about memory and how we hold memory mm. in our humanity. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be the person who says any of these things are universal. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think that when we're invited into to a story is how we build empathy, which is what makes something more appealing to a broader section of people. And we start to find ourselves or elements of ourselves in those stories or people that we know. So classic to me is something that feels familiar. And would you say that that is like the industry-wide definition or your definition? That's mine. That's mine. I mean, I, I mean, I don't even know what the industry is saying right now, to be honest with you. Right. Because I would, you know, if you got into an argument with me right now, I would argue that Beyonce is classic. Right. So uh, <laughs> alive and still working. Right. Like, so I think there's something, there's definitely something in there about how, how words and meanings change over time as well. And so, you know, what I learned coming to the Folger that I did not know before was that what was called the Renaissance when I was in school is now called the early modern period, right? So even there in the scholarly land, things have changed, mm. right? And so what was a classic is not necessarily just Greek or Roman influenced anymore. So I think it's very, it's something that evolves over time as it should because generations go by. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that also when we started Expand the Canon, we first were using the term classical because a lot of times classical theater is like Shakespeare. And then classical theaters tend to be Shakespeare and Shakespeare adjacent items. And there were a number of people on the internet that got very insistent about the Greek and Roman elements of classical. So now we use classic. But I think that there's a gift to that as well in that classic, as you say, has a lot more range and can. When we spoke at TCG, which is actually where we met, which is great, we also sort of use a work of art of recognized and established value as a classic. I love your that take on memory and what that means. I think we tend to use the word like legacy in a way that is sort of an adjacent term. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I, I guess that kind of shifts into this other question about what is what is the value of a of classic work to a contemporary audience? You were saying it it resonates, it feels familiar, but why why do we still do them? Why why does your organization work on them? And why not just stick to new plays that feel at least familiar and or accessible in that yeah, way. Absolutely. You know, before I answer that, I just want to say that I really have to hold space for is that we are really talking about a westernized perspective on theater, on classic, on memory. So I just say, like, let's remember who we're talking about. <laughs> we're, we're talking about a very specific, you know, formation of culture that this references. And that is not the way everybody looks at what is classic and or classical. So, so that's just something that I want to say. I think the way my, my theater looks at it 
you know, obviously it's in our name, right? I work for the Folger Shakespeare Library. So that's the parent <laughs> institution that I'm the director of programming. And in that I'm working across all segments of the library, our institute, our exhibitions and library and, you know, education programming. So not everybody that I work with actually works in theater. So there's a much larger world of thought about what is classic that I'm just digging into. <laughs> so to really truly understand and to get to know. I also run the theater. So I'm the artistic director of Folger Theater, which is a major component. And what I think is unique about our institution is that when it was formed, they decided that they were going to create this repository for all humanity here, this collection. And inside this building, which looks kind of like a mausoleum on the outside right now, but that's changing. And on the inside, like a manor home, they decided to stick a theater in it. Right. Like, and so here we are adjacent to, I mean, we're what, a block and a half from the U.S. Capitol. We are kitty corner to the U.S. Supreme Court. We are next door to the Library of Congress. So we are surrounded on, you know, three sides or by federal government institutionalized, you know, places. And on the other side, it's residential. It's purely residential. It's homes, it's houses, it's people living their lives. And we are quite frankly, this weird little transition period, you know, between or place between the institutions and the people. And I don't think it's an accident that somebody stuck a theater there and, and a library there. And so for me, this is a place for us to go and explore our past, but it is when we're there about curiosity and about being able to maybe understand our past so that we can make new choices in our future or to connect ourselves to something larger than us as individuals. It is a place to be curious, you know, to be inquiry driven at its core. And again, I said, it's no accident that the biggest institutions of our government are next door to this building. So that's why I'm at the Folger Shakespeare Library and why I do think this particular institution should and does hold a place in classic, but it, it's not static. It's not in the past. It's about who we are today and every generation that comes after. And we continue, we actively collect. So that's something I don't know if everybody knows, but the culture still collects. It's not, it's not a, a collection that is just sort of baked, but we are constantly adding to that and thinking through all the different ways that what is inside that building is going to be available and accessible to more people. And the emphasis that I have now as both the director of programming and as the artistic director is I'm really thinking hard about how what exists can be made meaningful to more people, no matter who they are or where they come from. So if you're at all familiar with DC, and I'm just getting familiar with DC, so, but we're talking about sitting in Capitol Hill, but on one side of Capitol Hill, this very traditional, you know, Black neighborhood City, right? It's still there. But we also have these sort of gentrified sections and very young people. There's a really interesting, you know, mix, myriads of people that coexist in and around this institution. And so that's the sweet spot for a place like this where we have stuff, we want you to use it. <laughs> Come and explore and define it for yourself. I love that. I love that sense of 
broadening and I feel like that builds on your work with the mobile unit in such a beautiful and totally understandable way of making this the outreach and the accessibility of these works because right it's all about does it does it mean something to us are we in conversation with it that said I wonder you know working at a Shakespeare theater do you think is something that was once a classic always a classic you know, is there something that is permanently enshrined? Are there some classics we should retire or some things that were once classics we should revive? Ignore our biases for a moment on that question. But where does that go? Do we have to add a lot? I think we're always adding. I think there's sort of a, a conscious and a subconscious, you know, sort of to this, the progression of culture. And I think that we're always constantly adding new things, and new conversations. We're always looking back at old things for inspiration. Um, or understanding one of the two, I think, or both. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I just think there's room for both. I don't think we, now there are some things like you just shouldn't, right? Like nobody should really watch Birth of a Nation and and talk about that anymore. I mean, there's some obvious things. And then there's some things that I think are good for critical thought about why, right? So there's degrees, there's a spectrum of what is good and also over time, right? What events, circumstances, things that happen in our lives and in our personal and in our cultural history that then created, you know, sort of layer a different kind of colored lens on top of all of these things. And there are just some things that are right and they're wrong, right? Absolutely. And then there's some things that are wrong that are going to come back and we're going to look at them and think, well, now why was this even here to begin with? Because that deserves a chance to be explored and understood. If there's a lesson, if there's something to be learned inside of that, that can be carried forward. I think it worthwhile. Now, then there's other things that we're like, hey, y'all, could we retire white supremacy? That'd be great. But it's embedded in almost everything, right, culturally. So we have to like go through and allow ourselves the room, the space to inquire, to be curious, and then to parse out what, what needs to be parsed out and what needs to be kept. Totally. Yeah. I, and I also think, you know, one doing this work of doing research, we now, this was kind of a fun detail. I was writing our press release for this year and going back two years ago when we started the project in 2020, that we had found 500 titles of plays by women and non-binary writers through history. And now in our database, we have 5,000, which is pretty amazing that this history you know, there's always more to add and it leaves crumbs everywhere. And we, the reason that we curate our lists are you read some of these plays and you're like, oh no, no, we don't need to uplift that. No, no, no. (laughs) Unfortunately, not all, just because the play is written by a woman doesn't mean that it's feminist. And yeah, alas, that said, you know, this sense of of what do we uplift? Where do we turn our attention? How do we, in that unpacking of, white supremacist values, but also I think a lot of educational practices, regularity. I think so many people do something just because it's been done before. And in that sense of canon, you know, for expand the canon, the definition we were have used is the list of works considered to be permanently established as being of the highest quality. And I guess I would ask you, especially thinking as a Shakespeare theater leader. How do we think of what's permanently established? Yes, we're always adding. How do we think about that balance? How do we think about what else gets that boost? Yeah. 
Woo, that's a good question too. I think my personal feeling is that there are some things that just need to be put on the shelf to collect dust for a while. I think Taming of the Shrew is one of those. I'm like, it's okay if we never do this. And I say that as somebody who kind of likes it, right? <laughs> Even though I'm like, oh, there's so much wrong with this. It's so horrendous. And at the same time, I'm like, but you know, it's really funny. <laughs> and you know, uh, all of these things can be true simultaneously. But I think in our industry as theater people, I'm, I'm like, stop doing that now. It doesn't make it better when a woman directs it. It doesn't make it better with an all-female cast. Been there, done that. You're not the first ones, right? Like, nobody's offering anything new in that space. I don't think for maybe some time. So, and I'd be happily proved wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, hey, if that story doesn't actually get produced again. And I think, okay, well then what do we produce? That's where you all come in. <laughs> I'm biting my tongue because we literally have a play where we're like, please replace Tammy of the Shrew forever with Bold Stroke for a Husband by Hannah Cowley. Just please, it's, you get all the great jokes. I swear, I swear people watching or listening, I did not softball this for Karen and say, say Tammy of the Shrew so I can make a plug. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We agree. And I, that's one of my like, ah, but okay, back to the real question. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think, I, I mean, like, like I'm saying, I just, I think I would be, I would be okay if some things just got to sit on the shelf for a while, you know? And, and I say that as a, as a person who's made her career and not even deliberately, that was the question you asked me that I, I didn't really answer. I had no intention of going into work for, you know, theaters that only work for Shakespeare. I, I have my master's degree in musical theater. I don't even take theater 101, you guys, okay? But ask me anything you want about the history of musical theater and I'm here for you <laughs> and how to, you know, pull off a good 16 bar audition. So, I mean, I think that's the, the thing is, but I thought, and I think I thought wrongly, which is ironically what brings me here is that when I was young and trying to be an actor, I thought I needed Shakespeare mm. to be a good actor. And so that's what got me in because that's what had been shown to me going back to elementary school and, and, you know, middle school. And I grew up in San Diego. So the old globe was in my life, you know, from like middle school on. And so that it's what I knew and it's what I knew was theater and it's, it's what I knew people valued. And so that was the thing that I leaned into when I was like, I'm maybe I'm not an actor unless I, I can do Shakespeare. So I had to go study that. I, I wouldn't leave grad school until I did. And I think that that was really the thing that got me where I am. It's not because I was dying to go, you know, do classical theater for the rest of my life, particularly as a black woman. That's not the stories that I was like, oh, I must tell. It has been the thing that's allowed me to have many conversations with many kinds of people because it is so integrated into our culture and, and been held up for so long. And I have to acknowledge that, like, it is actually now a way in with people because it's been lorded over us for so many generations, people really do see it the same way I saw it as a way in. Yeah. And I think that that, that sort of enshrinement, that entanglement, especially, you know, as you were acknowledging earlier that we come from this very Western, frankly, like English, Anglo take on the canon, right? Shakespeare came over, I don't know if it's with the pilgrims exactly, but like on one of those boats from England and he's been here ever since. And I wonder that sense of need for you 
as a young actor and artist, how do we add to that, you know, or counter that? Would you say primarily education? We need to be getting more titles. Okay. Every high school, sure. Maybe we keep a Shakespeare, keep that legacy going. And also we have a play by a black woman. We do, we read Rachel by Angelina Weld Grimke. Is it seeking balance in education? Is it what we produce? Some blend of the two? What, how do we let up on that need? I think it's a blend. I think the thing that, that I used to think a lot, and I'm, I'm sure I, I said it many times and probably was ignored, but is, it's okay to start with Shakespeare, right? But we don't end there. And I think that's the thing that I would say. It's okay. Yeah, he's part of our culture now. Whether we like it or not, he's baked, he's in there, but you know what, but so is Tupac. So I didn't stop with Tupac, you know what I mean? Like, so I think, I think it's that, the idea that there's still more, as we were talking earlier about what's new, what's maybe in relationship to those things. I think that there's, there's always more, right, to be discovered within that particular artist or artists, but then there's also other people, right, who have been doing really interesting and telling interesting stories that we just never exposed anyone else to it. So I, I just think we do need to diversify what we're, what we're teaching. I can't tell you about, you know, like school K through 12, because I, you know, I just think our, our system's a bit effed, um, to be honest. So, but I do think when we get to the university systems and we start, right, because that's where we make our teachers, we make our teachers there. And I think it's our teachers then that need to have, I think, much more in-depth and, and a wider experience with different kinds of playwrights, different kinds of storytellers or literature and be encouraged to, right? And that that's actually a value of teaching. So that goes to sort of the pedagogical, you know, guidelines of, of a program. And I think we can make an effect change there. I think we can make an effect change in all of our Shakespeare institutions, frankly, right? There are other playwrights, even of these time periods. Again, one of the interesting things about being at the Folger is, you know, you have these scholars who are like translating plays, you know, from all over time. And a lot of times they'll, they'll send, you know, like scripts and things. And, and you're like, kind of what you were saying earlier, like, oh, that's kind of a body comedy that I don't know I could if I could put that one exactly that way on my stage you know <laughs> but it's interesting and can I find a mechanism and another way to share those right and again have those conversations introduce those to larger audiences and talk about their value to us today without it being necessarily like gonna sink half a million dollars into a production of something that I have no idea <laughs> what kind of reception it's going to get. But we have already have great means to to share work and do readings and, and explore things. And I think we just have to really shift into being a little bit more process oriented with our work, a little bit less product, and really thinking more about how we can crack open and have conversations about the kinds of work, what's available to us, and how do we share that, teach it, and require people to have more expertise than just one thing, quite frankly. And I love, I love so many of the things you just said. Uh, <laughs> although I do want to kind of zoom in on a little part of that. We, as Expand the Canon, is currently predominantly an advocacy 
tool and project. And we actually have at least one course at a university someone is teaching that is entirely a syllabus of our plays, which is super exciting. So it's definitely possible to make some change in that world. But with the producing organization side and the Shakespeare theater side, we've gotten a lot more pushback of, well, but these are untested or as you say, like we don't want to dump a bunch of money into something that we're not sure will work. I think readings are a good start. What would you say or how would you counter that sort of fear? How do we counter that resistance to wanting to get out of that safe Shakespeare zone? Yeah. I mean, it's quite frankly, a nut I have yet to crack myself. And I think one of the, the things of, you know, becoming an artistic director is, you know, you get to look under the carpet and see what's swept there. So you have to figure out, she says, in process of learning how to create that drive, that interest and to create the right messaging. And I'm figuring it out, you know, readings. As you know, you know, I've shared with you, that's one of the things I'm going to start as sort of a new play festival of things that are adapted, inspired, or in conversation with is how I'm talking about it with Shakespeare. So that I'm not having to just, you know, get somebody's, I don't know, Afro-futurist version of, of Othello, right? Like, I want something else. I want somebody who's telling a different kind of story or perspective, lending their modern perspective or our modern concerns and utilizing you know, either Shakespeare or a contemporary, right, as a vehicle for telling stories of today and who we are now. That's what I'm interested in. I want to hear and see and think about this material in new and different ways. I'm also really interested in how these works inspire our own storytelling and valuing the other voices, right, and giving space to people who don't normally get to tell or share their stories, so that we're not having to continue to do advocacy work like this, where we go and have to like find and dig and convince people, but to say, no, the value of, you know, to me, the value of Shakespeare, the value of his work is that he has shown us some really great tools for telling our own stories and to telling new stories. And we get to use those tools any way we want to, because I mean, he's dead. So let's do that. <laughs> right? Like I think enough people have been true or as true as anybody really could be to it for a really long time. But again, what's his value to me now? What are the other playwrights? Maybe his contemporaries, maybe not. But I'm also really interested in like my neighbor across the street, you know, who's lived in that house and, you know, for 40 years and watched this neighborhood change over time. I'm curious about what her stories are. I'm curious about, you know, the, just people, everyday people who probably have some really extraordinary, curious things happen to them, but at their heart have something that I could find in it for myself or for others. And I'm also interested in the people who we never did share their stories. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like when I go into a room and I start saying what I just said, um, don't worry, the eyebrows go up. Shoulders go up. The tension is there when you start to compete with this ideal. And I, I am not interested in the church of Shakespeare or the church of classics. I'm not interested in that. I, I already got a church. Okay. So I just feel like what we need to do is really kind of own our, our capitalism that's in, in bed with Shakespeare. I, and I, honest to God, that's, that's my honest answer. That's the issue. The issue is nobody wants to innovate the model of the work because it works for them. People come back. 
they eat it up. So they keep, they rinse and they repeat. I do think it's possible to make change, to be more expansive and to still give people that love what used to be still what they love and also train them to like something else at the same time. And simultaneously, I think we can build more space for more people that may not have exactly the same taste, but who might be able to walk into a room, appreciate that, but also appreciate the other thing that is new or not been done as much and therefore build an audience for the other work. Only time will tell. That's the test I'm in, I'm in on right now. I have heard unnamed Shakespeare theater leaders say, well, once one of your plays gets a New York Times review, and if I, if I have a New York Times <laughs> quote that I can use to advertise this, then maybe I'll feel more comfortable. In terms of that sort of like capitalist pushback, do you feel like that sort of like stamp of approval is enough? Do you think it's just going to take people being bold? I do think there's a boldness and there's, there's some savvy, I think. And I think there's just persistence. I feel like you have to be darn confident that changes on your side, culture, life, everything, your generation, you know, your generation. And when you get there, let's say it takes you five years, 10 years, let's hopefully it's not that long, but I'm just picking a random number. But in 10 years, the people who have been holding that and are saying that they're not even going to be there, you know? So let's go build some new critics, number one, you know, um, let's, let's diversify our critics. Let's get people from different experiences, different, different cultural backgrounds. We should have a good cross-section of critical thinkers that are no longer just coming from a particular ilk and a particular background or privilege, quite frankly. That's what I see happening. I, I think that's the opportunity we're in in these next few years. But I think that there's such an, a, a neat opportunity for us to, to really lean in and lean in hard and to try some new things. And I think people are looking for it. I think there are a few brave souls that are just waiting, right, until they can get their foot in there. And what you're doing in the meantime is building that audience, is building that conversation around the work, is building the interest, is getting the information out so that it's easily accessible and not only a few people know about it. It's number one. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is absolutely our goal. Well, I would love to know if any beautiful folks with us, do you have any questions? We've got one question from our founding artistic director, Mary Candler. You mentioned that you have a lot of like translations pouring in. And this year in our list, we have more translations than we've ever had before. How do translations arrive at the Folger? Are they solicited? Do people just find an old work and translate them? Like, how does that get decided? Yeah, no, they show up. Just show up. No, I mean, I think what it is, is we do have such a tight network of scholars. We do have fellowships for scholars. A lot of folks will come from different universities across the world and come to the Folger and study. And so a lot of times they are focused on a particular area in the early modern period. And so they are working on something and the Folger has the right things in their collection, essentially to help them explore or expand their research. And so that's where I think a lot of it starts. And so, yeah, so you have people that are working on new versions all the time. What I have learned, and which is something that I, I'm super tickled, I should say, about, I'm totally tickled because I, you know, I get an envelope in the mail. And even to me, sometimes I go, I, I don't really know what to do with this right now. 
But I also know I never throw anything away, right? Because there's always that moment where you go, didn't I? Yes, yes, yes. There's somebody sent me something about this and you, and you dig that back out and you take a leather look at it and you reach out to that person and you say, hey, talk to me about this. So I think that that's kind of how I do it. I'm sure as time goes on, I will find a more official (laughs) process in which to do that with. But I think a big piece of it for us is going to be really partnering in with the research arm. And really, I would like to define these pathways much more and specifically for artists in addition to scholars and or scholar artists as they may be and lean into some of these things. We wrote an article for American theater about the value of translations and the need for that in terms of diversifying whose perspective and what voices we're giving acknowledgement to. Because as you said earlier, Karen, there are so many classics. People, people who are not in the Western world think about classics in a very different way and we deserve to have those legacies as well. Awesome. Thanks for that question, Mary. We also have Donna, Donna Gordon. I do love Shakespeare because it's poetry in drama. And that, you know, it's it's unusual. There are some early 20th century writers that were getting into that. It's kind of been left behind. Also kind of keeps the bar high for European writers, I agree, which comes up with one of my questions. I have two. First of all, are you adverse to people taking the classics and rewriting them in modern language? I use the word jargon kind of loosely. I mean, even sometimes it's funny if they put it into street languages for that matter, you know, things like that. Is that hurtful to people that have spent time digging up these classics and doing research and so forth? Yeah. I mean, I I can only speak from my experience, Donna, and I was just there, by the way. I just left San Diego yesterday. I would say that it depends on who you talk to. The scholars that I have met that are very serious about their work, and they spend a lot of time in years, as you can imagine, is anything that you've spent a lot of time and energy on, it becomes very precious to you. And so I I do think that's a, a natural human thing. We have a hard time wanting to separate ourselves from something that we love in the way that we love it. I always try to personally try to honor that and also, you know, use that to enter into conversations about other ways and other perspectives on, on the work. So that's sort of the kind of folks that I've kind of run into lately here. I also think they're just people who, you know, have really dear memories of the first show that they ever went to. You know, a lot of folks will say it was the first Shakespeare a play they ever saw, you know, their grandmother took them to it or, you know, that kind of a thing. So, um, you know, you always have to be really careful and sensitive that, you know, what we do is, is it does really, it really does raise sort of deep, deep, deep emotional connections with people. I mean, that's what theater really is so great at. So you always have to honor someone's experience and who they are. I'm cool with the, with the language. A lot of the work I did at the Old Globe I helped launch the Reflecting Shakespeare program that goes out into the the prisons at Sentinel Estate Prison there. And, you know, when I was out there working with the guys, you know, these guys were rewriting it, owning the language for themselves and and utilizing it to tell their own stories. It was really powerful. And I personally feel not not the producer hat, take off the producer hat, but I actually think that's one of the most, you know, beautiful uses for Shakespeare today is to help give power to individual voices that they get to feel their their agency they also get to feel empathy because theater allows us to role play 
right? And a lot of folks, and particularly a lot of these guys that are, you know, been locked up for 20, 30 years, they've been up there most of their lives. They were still young people. Their character wasn't yet formed. And they recognize that when they do this work, but they never really got the chance to play the way that a lot of us did to make mistakes. And theater allows us to do that. So it becomes a really useful tool when you are working with people who want to change their lives and do something new and bring, you know, and reconnect with people. My other question was, as far as it's important, isn't it, to have interpreters? Uh, If you're going to, you know, bring a a play from India, say, you know, you can't, they do have their classics, I'm sure, or Russia, it obviously has classic. And then there's other, obviously, African plays that have been written, say, in the last hundred years. And, you know, maybe before that, and that's, you know, it's an idea of, uh, do you get enough interpreters, you know? I'll take part of that question. Um, what I've heard from translators as we were writing that article is that there is not enough support for translations. And a lot of theaters don't always see translations as play development or new play development. So there's not as much support as there are for writers, like new playwrights creating their own work. So that's one of the reasons that we wrote that article, which is in the chat that, you know, we need to support more translations so that the Western American theater can get a more global understanding of, of what yeah. is a classic and what perspectives we need. So thank you for that question, Donna. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a couple other questions in the chat. Marisa comments on the 5,000 plays. I know it's huge. Um, wow, I guess my curious question would be, have you found any patterns amongst the plays about why they haven't been heard of or uh, why we haven't heard of them or the playwright? Yes, that they're women, <laughs> women or non-binary writers. But beyond that, I think one of the interesting things that we found, and if you go to expandthecanon.com, we have not only a blurb about the play itself, but also about the playwright. And every time, because we we don't choose plays based on the playwright's bio. We are very intentional about having a diversity of perspective and type of play, of era of play, background of writer. That said, when we choose a play, we then go into, okay, who is this person? What did they do? And so often their bio is actually this play was produced and loved at the time and was very popular, or they, you know, were very successful in their time. A lot of these plays actually, and these women had incredible lives and legacies that we've just chosen to forget. So I think one thing that I over and over again, endlessly shocked by, but also, I don't know, have hope in a way. I'm not sure there are no firsts, but there are so many fewer firsts than we think there need to be. Almost anything was happening previously in history. There have always been non-binary people, trans folks. That is not a new thing. LGBTQ cultures is not new. It did not start in the 60s or the 80s. So the further back you go, it's there. The history is there. It's just that we need to choose to honor those legacies, uplift them, and look back into them, deciding that we care about them too. So I hope that answers your question. Kyan writes... Thank you both for doing this. Karen, you're working with living playwrights on adaptations and conversations with classics, this year Shakespeare. Could you tell us more about how one might get involved with this? Interested in learning more about this at the Folger, as well as Hedgefig, a playwright, in case that was not obvious. Ha ha. <laughs> Hi, Kyanne. It's a very good question. It's, it's definitely kind of a work in progress right now in terms of building this program. 
I feel bad. I don't have a, an a absolute concrete response other than to say you can do what that scholar did with the medieval French play and send it, send what you got <laughs> and a note. And then remind me where, where you heard me or where we, we came in touch with each other. And yeah, I think Emily will tell you that I, I always get back to folks and follow up. So it may not always be right away, but I do follow up. <laughs> but yeah, this year, Shakespeare, I mean, let's be honest, probably every year there's going to be some conversation with Shakespeare where we're not going to completely get away from it. But I, I have been thinking a lot about one of the reasons why we don't just do theater in our performance programming. We also do poetry and we also do music. And those are sort of the three performance tent poles at the Folger. And I really want to always keep those three aspects in conversation. So when we're looking at poets, poems, I'm looking at choreo poems and wanting to have a conversation about, you know, the evolution of poetry in terms of, I think, was it Donna just talked about the poetry of language in the plays so that we can pick different aspects to launch a modern conversation. And I think that's sort of how I'm thinking about it, but I'm also open to ideas. So reach out. Thank you so much. I just wanted to lend my voice to that. Thank you. Thank you. And it also sounds like another great way to get involved is to make sure that you're on the Folger email list. So you're getting updates from them and following them probably on Instagram. I don't know if you Twitter, we don't. We don't. Twitter. We're on Twitter. We're definitely on Instagram. And of course, if anybody goes to the face place anymore, we're there too. <laughs> so Love that. Yes. So definitely follow the Folger and all their activities. Of course, please do also follow Hedgepig. Get our email list. We will send you updates about the plays because as we were saying, people just need to know about them. So yeah, join our email list. Follow us on Instagram. We don't really Twitter and be a part of that conversation. Really, again, I just want to say thank you, Karen Ann, for your time. Such a pleasure to have these kinds of conversations, to hear your inspiring thoughts and perspective on how we move forward in this field. And I guess I would ask, is there anything else we should we should leave? Is there a note you'd love to leave people with? I, you know what? I, I think just keep persisting and don't give up. That's, that's unless what, we persisted. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and actually, ironically, I think that we that would be what my dad would tell me, which is the first thing that always pops in my head. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Don't stop. Love it. Well, thank you all for being here. It's such a pleasure. And until next time. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much to Lena Billos for editing this episode.